0: So Romans chapter three, starting in verse one, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way, chiefly because to them, the Jews were committed the oracles of God for what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true. But every man, a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome, when, uh, may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will ju- God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. And we'll stop there. So I remember growing up, there was a commercial came out in the 80s. It's a long way. Well, not for actually, no. <laughs> I would say it's a long way back, but I think everyone here remembers the 80s except for Tiffany and Stephanie. So anyway, there was this commercial back in the 80s for the American Express card. And in this commercial, there was a guy frantically trying to catch a flight back home. He flashes his Amex card to the, the ticket counter and they immediately say, well, we, I think we still have one seat left in first class. So the guy gets ushered in the first class. And then he arrives at his destination and he's desperately on the phone trying to get a car service. And immediately a car service comes, and he is able to jump the line and get into the car, and he makes it to his destination, and you find out he goes into this school, and he's just in time for his daughter's school play. And then at the end, uh, the tagline for the, the commercial is, Membership has its privileges, American Express. Now, why do I bring this up? Well... First of all, I have an American Express card, and I could say that I don't feel like people are bending over backwards to usher me into first class or, or you know, get me to the head of the line. I mean, if I flash my Amex card to the clerk at Walmart, she says, will you please stick the chip into the chip reader so we can get moving? And I'm like, okay, sorry. But anyway, if membership has its privileges, then I must have missed that meeting. Now, I can imagine that's kind of the way the Jews felt here at the end of Paul's Uh, discussion here in Romans chapter 2, if you recall from last week. If we are going to be subject to God's wrath, just like the Gentiles, uh, then what's the point of being Jewish? We thought being God's chosen people would give us some sort of benefit, some sort of leg up in the world. It would shield us from the wrath of God that is coming against the unrighteous Gentiles. And I can certainly imagine Paul's Jewish debate partner here saying something like that. Now, just to kind of recap where we are in Romans. Romans, if you remember, is an epistle that uh, Paul wrote to the church in Rome and in which he sort of details uh, the exposition of the gospel. It is probably the most detailed uh, presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in the entire Bible. It talks about how, why we need justification, how we're justified, and then how we're to live in light of that justification. Paul's writing to a group of Christians, if you remember, whom he has never met. He did not start this church, but he was eager to get there. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians and other letters, and particularly in the book of Acts, how he wants to go to Rome. And the reason why he wants to go to Rome is because he wants to use Rome as sort of like a launching base to go out to further missionary journeys out west to Spain and so on. Now, he certainly would have heard about some of the things going on in Rome. And so he writes to encourage them to live out the truths of the gospel. And that's why he writes what he writes. In fact, if you remember from our very first session, there may have been some tensions in the church there between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and Greek. And if you read through Romans, and I encourage you to do so, if you read through Romans, you see a constant back and forth between the Jew and the Greek. You see it in the very first, uh, in you know when he, when in verses sixteen and seventeen, when Paul gives his theme statement, he says that the gospel of God is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. And then in Romans two, he talks about how the wrath of God is coming to the Jew first and to the Greek. It's and then you later on in Romans you see this. Sort of in Romans chapter nine or chapters nine through eleven, you see this. Well, what about the Jew, you know, kind of thing. So there's must have been some tension at least between Jew and Gentile relations in the church. At least we can sort of surmise that based on what is written. So Paul's repeated refrain here to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It just shows that the gospel is for everyone. It is the revelation of the righteousness of God. That is the big theme i want us to get across here is that the gospel is a revelation it is a revelation of the righteousness of god to the jew as well as to the greek because as we said the gospel has the power of god unto salvation for everyone who believes because everyone jew and greek are equally under the righteous judgment of god and that's what paul then starts to go through in chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 verse 20 god or paul is showing how god's righteous judgment is being revealed against sinners it's almost sort of a a parenthesis if you will a you know if you think about it if you look at verse 17 of chapter 1 you know it says for in it the gospel for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is, as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And then if you flip all the way over to chapter 3, verse 21, you see again, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So, you know, verse 17 of chapter 1 connects with verse 21 of chapter 3. And in between is this sort of giant parenthesis, this giant parenthesis that shows us why The righteousness of god needs to be revealed in the gospel because we are under the righteous judgment of god and then in these verses in these chapters paul belabors the point that the gentiles are under the wrath of god that the jews are under the wrath of god you see god's righteous judgment against gentiles in chapter one is being revealed it is currently being revealed against their ungodliness against their unrighteousness because they reject the truth of God. They reject what is tr- what they know of God in their hearts and they refuse to give him thanks and they refuse to glorify his name as holy. Of course, God's righteous judgment is also being revealed against his own people, the Jews. Now, against his people, the Jews, it is not currently being revealed as it is against the Gentiles. It is being stored up. You see that in chapter 2. He says... The wrath of God is you are storing up wrath for yourselves because your hard and impenitent hearts refuse to repent. You know, the the kindness of God, the patience of God in not showing them wrath right away is meant to lead them to repentance. But instead, their hard hearts are storing up wrath when that wrath will be revealed on the day of wrath when Jesus Christ returns. So you've got wrath being Revealed right away against the Gentiles. You've got wrath currently being stored up for the Jews who refuse to repent. And then now as we get to, if you remember from last week, as we get to that last part of chapter two, Paul then closes that section talking to the Jews about by attacking areas of Jewish confidence, attacking areas where the Jews would have felt like they had a sort of a sense of security. They felt that they had a sense of security in the fact that they had the law. And they had a sense of security in the fact that they had circumcision. So they, they felt that these marks that God had blessed them with was sort of, would sort of shield them. That, that God would not uh, punish them because, well, we're, we're marked off. We're God's chosen people. And Paul uh, kind of lays that to waste. He tells them that having the law isn't enough if you're not obeying the law. And he tells them that being circumcised isn't enough if you don't keep the law. In other words, in, in fact, he tells them, he says, your failure to keep the law is making your circumcision uncircumcision. It's like you're basically undoing what you have done in your flesh by your lawlessness, by your unrighteousness. And then he concludes chapter 2 with this great uh, verse, in, in, this great saying in verse 29. But He says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and the circumcision that is, in, that is of the heart, not made by hand, but of, in the heart by the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, what he's saying there is that Jewishness has always been a matter of the heart. It has always been a matter of the heart. It's not outward performance. It's not outward ritual. It's not outward circumstances. It is a matter of the heart. Now, if Paul just left things there, one might rightly respond, well, then what's the point of being a Jew? What's the point of being a Jew if if I've taken this sign of the covenant in my flesh and if I've received this law and it's not going to benefit me anything, what's the point? I thought membership had its privileges, right? I'm not seeing the privileges here. seems like the Jews may have gotten a raw deal. And that's what Paul is going to address in our section today, Romans 3, 1 through 8. That's our focus for this morning. In these verses, Paul will conclude his treatment of God's righteous judgment uh, against the Jewish people. And, says, and he's going to say that far from having no privileges at all, the Jews were entrusted with much. They were entrusted with many, many things. And then, Lord willing, next week, we're going to finish off chapter 3 here as we look at 9 through 20. He's going to wrap up then his entire argument that he's been making in these chapters as he wraps up his argument about how God's righteous wrath is being revealed against sinners. He's going to show that both Jew and Gentile stand condemned in God's righteous courtroom, that works of the law, we talked about that before, works of the law will not justify you. We are all guilty before God's. Uh, before god the righteous judge and then paul will rest his case in which we get a sort of god inspired picture of just how bad the bad news really is and we've been kind of hammering this point on too you know the gospel of course is good news but in order for good news to be good news we need to know how bad the bad news is and spoiler alert it's pretty bad In fact, we're in a hopeless situation before God if we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about how Paul likes to use a rhetorical device in Romans called the diatribe. We we mentioned it at the beginning. We mentioned it, I think, uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 as well. And here he's going to employ this device again where he sort of, anticipates a question that might come upon uh, the lips of someone who is hearing what he says. Now, you may think, well, Paul, you must be pretty smart. Well, I'm sure Paul, as he has preached throughout the countryside, as he went from missionary location to missionary location, probably had tons of questions thrown in. What about this, Paul? What about that? What about this? And Paul had to answer these questions. So just like anybody who's sort of experiencing this kind of thing, when these questions come up, he can almost anticipate the questions before the people even ask them. And that's what Paul is going to do here. He's going to ask and then answer the question. So given what he has said in the previous section, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, in which Paul says that having the law is not going to save you if you don't do the law, And having circumcision is not going to save you if you don't do the law. The Jew can rightly ask, well, if having the law doesn't save me and being circumcised doesn't save me, what's the point of being a Jew? Paul anticipates this question when he says in Romans 3.1, what advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? See, he's asking the question that would probably come to the mind of somebody who had just heard what he had said in the previous section. After hearing that, you're going to say, well, why am I doing this? Why why am I doing this? So what advantage has the Jew or what value is uh, circumcision? Now, to be fair, this is a good question. I think it's a fair question to ask, particularly given what Paul has said. Think of it this way in our church context here. Coming to church isn't going to save you. I can say that, right? Coming to church isn't going to save you. Being baptized isn't going to save you. Being confirmed isn't going to save you. Reading your Bible every day isn't going to save you. And we might all agree, well, yeah, these things don't save. uh, But only faith in Christ saves. That's what we believe. And that's what we confess. But also in saying those things, you might think that I'm sort of reducing the value of those things. Or so maybe I'm sort of kind of trashing those things it's like if i say well coming to church isn't of any value to you you know you're not going to be saved by coming to church you might say well why should i come to church <laughs> why should i read my bible if that's not going to save me you know and to the jewish ear, what paul is saying might sound like he's trashing their jewish heritage look your your law isn't going to save you your circumcision isn't going to save you and the jew might think well why? okay then i feel like you know, you're kind of trashing everything that I believed in, everything I've held sacred. Well, Paul's not doing that. Neither would I minimize coming to church. I would never minimize being baptized. These things you should do. You should come to church. We are called to gather together to worship. You should be baptized. We are commanded to baptize our children. You should be you should be confirmed in the faith. You should, you know, be taught and catechized the faith, and then at a certain age you should be able to accept that confirmation you should be able to accept that promise that was sealed to you in your baptism and and receive it as your own faith and you should certainly read god's word each day pray to god each day these things are all helpful things They're disciplines that we should engage in as christians but just remember these doing these things isn't going to save you it is something we do because we wish to commune with God. It is something we do because we wish to obey what God has commanded us, and we wish to engender and build up ourselves in the faith. Now, in Romans 3, 2, Paul affirms that there is great privilege in being Jewish. Where he says in verse 2, he says, well, what's the profit of what advantage has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? He says in verse 2, much in every way. Chiefly, because to them, the Jews, were committed to the oracles of God. You want an example of how, uh, how much tremendous, tremendous advantages the, the Jews had? They were entrusted with the sayings, with the words, with the messages of God. Now, what are these oracles? The Logia to Theu. What are the oracles of God? The phrase could refer narrowly to the law of God itself, the Ten Commandments, and the various laws that were given on Mount Sinai. Uh, in Stephen's speech, uh, when Stephen, right before Stephen, is about to be stoned as he is, he gives this long speech in Acts chapter 7 after the, the you know, you've got this sort of very uh, angry crowd there. He has, he has stumped all of their, their best arguments, and now they're angry, and he preaches to them this long Sermon in, in, in Acts chapter seven, and near the end of that, he says, "This is the one who was in the congregation, speaking of Moses. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us." So it could refer narrowly to the law of God as Moses, as God gave the law to Moses, and Moses then brought these oracles to the people. But it can also refer more broadly to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Deuteronomy 4 8 says, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Referring to the entire revelation that God has given to his people. Or Psalm 147 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Here, you know, again, we're talking now the great blessing it is to have the revelation of God, the oracles of God. To no other nation has God spoken directly to. To no other nation has God delivered his oracles to the Jews and to the Jews alone was entrusted these oracles. It's sort of like a, a wealthy man entrusting a steward of his house with the wealth of his house. Think of, of uh, Joseph in Egypt. When Joseph was in Egypt and he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar entrusted to him all of his, uh, his, his uh, business. He said, basically, you run the house, I'll, I'll be the boss of you, and you're the boss of everybody else. You run my house. I entrust all of this to you. And then later on, Joseph gets elevated to Pharaoh's right hand. And the same thing, Pharaoh says to Joseph, "Okay, you're going to be the boss of everybody in the country. I'll be your boss. But, you know, you could be the boss of everybody. You know, he's entrusting all of this to Joseph because Joseph showed himself to be a trustworthy man. And here God is entrusting to the nation of Israel his, his oracles. They've been entrusted with this treasure. Now, Paul doesn't mention it here, but the same thing could be said of circumcision, too, because that was entrusted to the Jews. It was a great privilege to them. They were sort of marked off, they were set apart as God's chosen people, and the mark on their flesh was a sign of the covenant that God made with, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This covenant that he would be their God, they would be his people. This is a great privilege. It's a great privilege. In fact, you can keep your finger in Romans 3 and turn over to Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, the first five verses, Paul kind of expands on these privileges that the Jews have. Where he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall, the eternally blessed God. Amen. So there Paul sort of lists a number of the tremendous blessings that and advantages that the Jews had by being Jewish, by God entrusting to them many of these things. They had adoption. They were, Israel was God's adopted son. They had the glory. They had the covenants. God made covenants with no other nation except the Jews. The giving of the law, which Paul talks about in Romans 3. The service of God. Think about that. The, the temple service in which the priests were set aside, the Levites were set aside to serve in the temple of God. A great privilege it is to serve the, the Lord of the universe. And the promises, all the promises that God made were through Israel. And of course, the the greatest promise was the Christ. The Christ was born out of Israel. Great blessing indeed. Many advantages to being Jewish. You can turn back to Romans 3. God entrusted to the Jews the sign and seal of his covenant blessings to the Jews. Being a Jew meant being a member of God's covenant community and being a recipient of many blessings. But as we've said before, like my favorite line from Spider-Man, if you remember that one, with great power comes great responsibility. Okay, They were entrusted with much, but just as one who is entrusted with much, you expect much in return. Again, think of how those parables of the talents that our Lord uh, gives at the end of the Gospels, Where he gives to one five, he gives to one two, and he gives to another one. And to the one who has five, he brings five back. To the one who has two, he brings two back. And to the one who has one, he brings the one back. He doesn't even give him any return on investment on that one. But the idea being is that some people are able to do much with what God gives. Some people are able to do a little bit and some, you know, a little bit more. But the point is, whatever God has entrusted you with, that is what you should return to God. They were entrusted with much, and with much comes much responsibility. Now, as we come to Romans 3, Paul is going to raise two more questions that come from the mouth of his hypothetical opponent. He says, well, what if some Jews were unfaithful? And does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Look at verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, to understand what Paul is getting ahead here in these verses, we need to realize that this section here, Romans 3, 1 through 8, is the conclusion of Paul's argument against the Jews. So if you recall what we talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we said that God's wrath is coming for the Jews as well. The Jews will not simply escape his judgment because they're Jewish. Their hardened and penitent hearts are storing up wrath for the day of wrath, and with this in mind, Paul's opponent counters by essentially asking, is God then unrighteous by punishing Jewish unfaithfulness? That's what the question is trying to get across here. Or to put it a different way, does God judging his people somehow break his covenant with them? That's the question that's being asked here in verse three. A deeper problem may be expressed here as well. Does Jewish unfaithfulness in general somehow show an inability in God to bless and save his people. Now, this will be something that we'll delve a little deeper, Lord willing, when we get to Romans chapters 9 through 11, where Paul deals in detail what will happen with the Jews. But for now, we'll table that and we'll discuss it more fully then. But here's the thing. We see this all the time in our day and age, right? How many times have you seen a great tragedy hit Humanity and unbelievers say, Well, if your God is so good, why didn't He prevent this? How could a good God let this happen to people? Okay, you could think about COVID. Now, how could a good God let COVID run rampant through the country and through the world and kill however many people have been killed by it? Or 9 11? How could a good God let that happen? Pick a tragedy, pick a national or world disaster. And this critique invariably comes up. How could a good and loving God let X happen? Same thing is being said here by Paul's hypothetical Jewish opponent. How could God be faithful to his covenant if Jewish unfaithfulness exists? Doesn't God keep up his end of the covenant? So what does Paul say in verse 4? He says, certainly not. Now, this is a very strong negative, okay? (laughs) It would be something very different if it was said today, right? I mean, other translations will say, God forbid, or may never be. We may say something like, hell no, this would never happen. God is never unfaithful to his covenants, right? That's what we would say. We would say, no, never. This would never happen. Look at verse 4. Certainly not, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Jewish unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. God would be just and true even if everyone else was a liar. That's what Paul's saying here. Let God be true and everyone else a liar. doesn't matter. If everyone else were a liar, God would still be true. In other words, think of it this way, slightly you know not maybe it's a little bit tangential but if god were not to save anybody would he still be a good and righteous and just god yes god is merciful in that he saves us god is gracious in that he saves us but the thing with grace and mercy is that they're not earned they're not deserved they're not to be expected god is just as well and if god saved no one he would still be righteous and just and holy. And then to prove his point, Paul cites Psalm fifty one four. Now, Psalm fifty one, I'm sure you know well, is David's uh, penitentiary psalm. It is his psalm of repentance in his sin with Bathsheba and, and his, uh, when he is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And Nathan tells him the little parable about the man who had many sheep and the one guy who had a little ewe lamb. And the king wanted to serve a dinner to his guests. So he comes and he doesn't take any one of his many sheep. He goes to the guy and takes his one little lamb and serves that one. And David says, well, we need to kill that guy. This guy, this guy needs to be tarred and feather. And then what does Nathan say to David? He says, you to man. <laughs> you to da man, David. You to da man. That's you. But in Psalm 51.4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David here first admits that all sin is ultimately sin against God. I may sin against you, but ultimately that sin is first and foremost a sin against God. When I fail to love my neighbor as myself, I am failing not only to love you, but I'm more importantly failing the command of God who commanded me to love my neighbor as myself. And here God is justified because what David is doing is he is acknowledging his sin. He is confessing. That word confess means to, to say the same thing. God calls it a sin and when we confess, I'm calling it a sin as well. I am agreeing with God so that God may be justified in his words that what I have done is indeed sin. But then he also acknowledges here that God is righteous, just, and faithful to judge that sin. And that's the truth of the matter, right? When you see the sin in your own heart, in your own soul, you recognize that God is justified. He is vindicated in judging you for your sin. Now, thanks be to God, that Christ has taken the judgment for our sins, so that we do not face that wrath from God, but still, sin has to be punished, whether it's going to be by us for all eternity, or on the back of Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Now, as we get to Romans 3, 5, Paul raises the stakes yet again. Paul asks another question here. sort of like a devil's advocate type of question in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts inflicts wrath? And then in parentheses it says there, I speak as a man. Again, recall that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In the gospel, you see the righteousness of God revealed. And remember that we have said that the righteousness of God is revealed in his salvation of believers and in his punishment of sinners. So the question here, Paul asks, is if my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, then why is God angry? Why does he why does he judge me? Is he unfair to inflict punishment on me? Now again, this will be something that is developed more fully in Romans chapter nine through eleven. If you remember, you know in that where God talks about how you know He elects some and and passes over others, and then one will say, "Well, isn't God unjust?" And eventually, Paul will say, "Silence. You <laughs> need don't speak back to God. The pot will not call the potter unjust. The clay has no right to speak to the potter on how he is made." But uh, does God? Need our unrighteousness to, to demonstrate his righteousness? And if so, why does he punish us for, for providing him this opportunity to show his righteousness? That's the, the, the question that Paul is asking here. It's like the old saying with the government where you know, you know, the government will break your leg then give you a crutch and then say how much the government has helped you. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here, right? You, I've heard this complaint from unbelievers too. You know, you've probably heard this complaint from unbelievers a lot as well. That God is unjust and unfair to create human beings only to damn them. I've heard that. Have you heard that one? I've heard that one. But Paul even realizes that his own question is blasphemous to ask, which is why he says, I speak in a human way or I speak as a man. In other words, Paul doesn't really believe that this is a valid line of questioning. He's just offering it up anyway to drive the point home. And the point is this. God will judge unrighteousness because he is just and righteous. That's the point he's making. And of course, to answer his own question in verse 5, what does he say in verse 6? Again, by no means. That very emphatic negative. No way. No. None. Forbid it. Because Paul's answer is simple. He says, for then how could God judge the world? So he answers the sort of Blasphemous, silly question with his own rhetorical question, which is, you know, God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on Jewish unrighteousness. Uh, the mere suggestion is absurd on, on its face. In fact, the opposite is true. The very opposite is true because God is righteous and just. He must punish unrighteousness, right? Because God is righteous, he must punish sin, we know this to be true in our own hearts because we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. We have a moral conscience, though it is marred by sin. We still know this to be true. Just for an example, take of all the riots that are going on in, in the major cities in our country. And you see, you know, nowadays they're starting a little bit to sort of crack down on them. But a couple of weeks ago, you know, Seattle was in flames. Minneapolis is in flames. Chicago is in flames. All these cities we're being just run over by rioters, and the cities were not doing anything about it. The mayors were not doing anything about it. The governors were not doing anything about it. And we look at that, and we're able to see, that's not right, right? You can look and see, It's a, where is justice? Why isn't the mayor doing something about it? Why aren't they getting the police out there? Why aren't they calling for federal aid? Why aren't they doing these things? We know in our hearts that when you see unrighteousness out there, that it ought to be judged, We know evil deserves punishment and we're all eager to see those whom we dislike receive the just deserts of their actions. However, when you shine that light on yourself, you want mercy. You want grace. You know, Grace for me, justice for you. That's kind of what the human, human mentality is. But what kind of God would, be, would God be if he did not judge sin, if he did not judge unrighteousness? That's the question that Abraham asks in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, um, Abraham gets the, the heavenly visitors, which is a theophany. It's God sort of like in a human-like form with two angels with him. And they come and visit him. And then the two angels go off and they're about to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you've got that picture of Abraham sort of debating with God, sort of bargaining with God. And during that exchange, he acknowledges in Genesis 18.25... Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham knows that God is just, and he knows that God cannot but act justly. And Abraham asked God if he would destroy the city if there are 50 righteous persons in it. Then he acknowledges that God would never judge the righteous with the, un- the unrighteous, because God cannot but be just in his judgments. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was they couldn't find 50 righteous people. They couldn't find 10 righteous people. They barely had four righteous people and they were judged. But the, the point stands. God will judge with perfect justice. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. Now, of course, we not, not only would God not be righteous and just if he didn't punish sin, but he wouldn't be God either, right? Christians are told not to take vengeance, right? But to leave it to the Lord. Paul will say this in Romans 12, citing Deuteronomy uh, 32, where uh, God says to Moses, vengeance is mine, I will repay it. But if God doesn't judge sinners, then what's the point? There, might, there will be no final justice. All wrongs will not be righted, and we may as well settle our own scores, right? We may as well go to an old Wild West kind of thing where, you know, if someone wrongs you, you take vengeance. You sort of right the wrong yourself. No, Paul says, certainly not, for how will God judge the world? He judges the world righteously because he is a righteous God. Then as we close here in verses 7 and 8, Paul Uh, continues showing the absurdity of this line of arguing in verses 7 and 8 where he says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? That's another question put to Paul. Then Paul says, well, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What Paul is saying here is that the point he's making is that if you believe that through my sin or through my lies, God's truth abounds, then you might as well believe that you can do something good by doing something evil. That's the foolishness of this reasoning. It's the line of argument that says that God shouldn't punish my sin because our sin makes God look good. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the argument he's trying to reject here. He says, well, my sin makes God look good. Maybe you've seen some of these old laundry detergent commercials, okay, and they they take all, you know, you take this article of clothing and you rub it in the dirt and it looks all filthy and maybe you get a bunch of dirty shirts together and then to show you how good this detergent is, you wash it and it comes out, it's all nice and white and clean and then you compare it to all the dirty shirts. It's like the dirty shirts serve to make the nice clean shirt look wonderful and splendid. That's what Paul's saying. It's like, well, my sin, my dirtiness, my filth makes God's righteousness look great So why should God punish me? Because I'm making him look good. And Paul says, well, you might as well then just say, why not do evil so that good may come? That's that's his point. He's just sort of rejecting that line of thinking as completely absurd. And that offhand comment by Paul, as some have slanderously charged us with saying, may suggest that Paul was accused by some of teaching a cheap grace or easy believism and we'll see this argument again in romans 5 and 6 and i've kind of alluded to it at points in time too where at the end of chapter 5 says that as sin abounded grace abounded all the more and then you know paul's little you know imaginary friend comes back and says well then you know we should sin so that grace will abound and paul says again may it never be you know or hell no or don't let that ever happen But this is uncommon with Christianity, right? I believe if if you're teaching true Christianity, then you're going to enrage two groups of people. You're going to enrage the antinomians, the people who are sort of libertine, who don't like the law at all, because you're going to put sort of requirements on what you need to do. But you're also going to reject the legalists because the legalists are going to want you to do even more. The point is, like, the gospel is sort of like the cure to both of those ills the antinomian ill, and the legalist ill. Both of them need the gospel. So if, you know, if you're preaching the gospel right, if you're teaching the, the gospel right, you're going to enrage both camps. That's the point. So as we close, membership does have its privileges. Being a Jew had great privileges for God's people, but those privileges came with some responsibilities. God judges impartially. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 11. God is impartial. He judges impartially. He judges his people equally, whether Jew or Greek. They're all going to come under the judgment of God. You don't get a free ride because you're a Jew. And having the oracles of God was a tremendous blessing, but it profits us nothing if we don't use those advantages and those privileges to lead godly lives. And the argument Paul will make later is that we have, as we have said numerous times, Salvation is by grace through faith alone, but it is not by faith. It is alone that faith must produce good works. Now, as we close, uh, just like I said, next week we'll look at the rest of chapter three. And then that'll be the last look at the bad news. Then two weeks, it's all good news from there.